Hello and welcome back to Fearless Questions, where we follow our questions to freedom. I'm your host, Jeff Blackburn, and today on the show we are welcoming in our friend John McCollum. John, how are you doing today? I'm doing well. I'm happy to be here with you. Good. Well, um, now John, I hope I get this right, but you were a former graphic designer turned marketing branding firm entrepreneur turned international nonprofit director of an organization. Yeah, that's about right. Yeah, that's about right. Okay, for an organization called Aegis Hope, yep. and uh, but before we kind of get into the nature of of what you're doing now, John, with with Aegis Hope, I wonder if we could um, just start out by giving giving people a little bit of background of of your journey getting to where you are today, and and maybe let's try and include some of your faith journey with your career stuff as well, because um, from what I know, it's probably a little hard for you to separate those two things, isn't it? Yeah, that's that's right. I mean, it's it's all part of the same journey. Well, just kind of just let's just jump in because most of my listeners may not be familiar with what you do, and so um, it's always helpful here. We we try and look at just different folks' journeys and the questions that arose along the way. So, kind of, what was your faith background? I mean, were you have you always been involved in faith stuff? And um, you know, did that have anything to do with being a designer, or was that totally a separate deal? And just sort of what what was your what was the background to all of this? Sure. Well, I, I was born at a very young age, and uh, I grew up in a Christian home, and I grew up in sort of what I would describe as an, a conservative evangelical church and Christian school community with a little bit of authoritarian fundamentalist leanings to it. Uh, but I grew up in a good home, a stable home, working class home, and um, my parents sacrificed to uh, uh, put me in a Christian school. Some of that was, you know, they wanted me to get uh, a good quality education. Some of it was the early 70s. I'm, a, I'm turning 47 this year, so I was born in 1970. But sort of an early 70s uh, Christian school uh, moment where there was a, a little bit of a cultural cultural anxiety. And so the, the church and the school, there was a lot of... Uh, uh, impulse towards separating out from what could be seen as the dangers of uh, society. And uh, so I was raised in, in this, um, this background. Uh, a lot of my uh, good friends are still in that background, and I you know, have a lot of uh, uh, respect for a lot of the people there. But it was a tough place for me at times because I was a uh, bit of a hyperactive kid. Uh, I was definitely uh, an individual I asked lots and lots of questions. I uh, was looking to express myself uh, all the time, and that was not uh, something that was particularly valued in the uh, <laughs> culture. You say that really politely. My experience is that those questions were not <laughs> not valued. Was a polite way of saying, "Please stop talking." Well, sure, <laughs> there was a lot of that as well. Uh, you know, I mean, it's one of those things. I think that you know, I, I mentioned fundamentalism, and and you know, I, I don't want to give the wrong picture. I don't really think of fundamentalism as being as much about a specific set of theological propositions as much as it is sort of a value system. You know, sure. uh, where you kind of have the smallest number of people making the largest number of rules with the highest degree of certainty, hmm. and uh, you know, it tends to, I think, promote. Uh, compliance uh, and uh, conformity, and uh, it was just something I didn't do well, and it wasn't for lack of trying. You know, I found a lot of times, you know, I was always the kid asking questions, and I think that from my Sunday school teachers to my uh, to my Christian school teachers, even my parents, and that I think that uh, it could often 
be confused as you know somebody who's trying to be a troublemaker. And to be fair, there were times that I did act out. You know, I, there there is one of those things. You, know, you get a kid who's super active who feels suppressed. A lot of times, you do uh, end up being the one pushing fire alarms. And <laughs> so you did you did earn your stir the pot uh, merit badge. Is that what you're saying? I, I did. You know, okay. and I'm up to that too. Uh, but, you know, there was uh, a, a lot of stress for me, I think, growing up because uh, I was I, I felt like I was being marginalized as being rebellious when I was really looking to uh, express, I think, my God given uniqueness. I feel like I was sometimes labeled as being a troublemaker or being, uh, you know, somebody who's just trying to rock the boat for the sense of rocking for the sake of rocking the boat. But I just had lots of questions and lots of things I, I was, was told didn't make sense to me. Uh, lots of people said things that, uh, didn't seem to be, uh, coherent. Uh, and, yeah, yeah. and, and so, so that, that was sort of my background. I was an artistic kid. I was always into music and that, and uh, so, you know, I grew up in that world. I went all the way through preschool, through graduating uh, high school in the same uh, private Christian school that was run by my church. Hmm. I met my high school sweetheart uh, who became my wife. We're now closing in on 24 years of marriage, I think. How about that? And, and uh, so... At any rate, I was uh, at the school, and uh, I, w- I was always involved in art and music, and so I always wanted to become either a professional artist or a professional musician, and uh, graduated high school, was dating Corey, and uh, she told me very clearly that we're not going to get married until one or both of us is out of college, <laughs> and, you know, I, I kind of wanted to get married, and so I decided to go um, you know, uh, major in English. The idea was that I'd get my, uh, degree in English and then I'd probably go to law school, become a lawyer, something that was remunerative, never made a lot of money, was in a school with a lot of people who had money and, uh, kind of wanted that. And my, my, I guess my plan was I was going to go into politics. Um, I was going to become a state representative and then Senator. And then by 35, I'd be president. And then after that, I'd go on to galactic overlord. There you go, man. (laughs) <laughs> or, or whatever was next. And, and, you know, it's interesting, and it's just coming back to me right now. I, I remember some of my teachers knew I wanted to be a lawyer, and so they recommended I talk to this guy in our neighborhood who was a judge, and he asked me if I really, really loved the law, and I was like, yeah, man, I really loved it. But what I really wanted, looking back on it, was I wanted some degree of significance. I wanted people to listen to me, mm-hmm. uh, or have to listen to me, or I wanted, wanted a place where I could sort of argue and, uh, you know, discuss things and, and have it be you know, sort of a part of my job and identity and not something that was shut down. Hmm. So, but, but, you know, I, I started in college, uh, moving towards my English degree and I had bought a Mac plus, which was, uh, for us old people who might remember these computers, it actually didn't even have a hard drive. It had an eight inch black and white screen, uh, <laughs> cost about a million dollars. And I had a Mac plus and I had, uh, uh, some pirated, graphic software that somebody gave me. And I just started teaching myself playing around with, uh, you know, some of these drawing programs. And I started learning how to do sort of rudimentary graphic design. It would have been called desktop publishing at at the time. One pixel at a time, probably right then, right? One pixel at a time, you know, and, and I, I started getting some freelance projects, you know, friends, dads, 
landscaping company, uh, the bar menu for the restaurant I was working at, all these different things. Okay. By the time I was about a junior in college, I was really, you know, I, I was doing what at the time would have been close to professional level work. And I realized I really want to do this for a living. I was really enjoying it. Uh, I had a bit of a portfolio. I was starting to do freelance work for some local firms. Um, but I decided at that point I didn't want to turn back and pursue a graphic design degree because I want to get married. There you go. <laughs> Corey wasn't having it until you graduated. That's right. So. That's right. And so I graduated and started work uh, immediately working at agencies and continuing freelance work. And, okay. and uh, a few years later, I um, started my own uh, graphic design firm and um, did that for about 11 years. It started out, uh, I started out as a graphic designer. I ended up hiring designers who were better than me at design, and I really started then uh, to integrate some of my uh, communication and questioning into my professional work, hmm. you know, doing, doing brand strategy, starting to ask the questions of our clients, rather, why do you want to have a picture on the left? You know, should it be red uh, logo or blue logo? But asking, you know, what are you really trying to do? What are you here for? Uh, how do you compete in the marketplace? And then I realized that was something I was really good at but so that's now, but now they listen because they were paying you right that's, so. <laughs> that's right paying me you know and and so there was a, a bit of a transition there to you know think of myself and to get other people to think of what we were doing not just as sort of you know set decorators but real you know mm -hmm. producers and writers and actors if you take the that sort of production metaphor yeah. and uh, so i built a firm that was uh you know pretty successful. We had a good reputation, uh, expanded a little bit. Um, and, uh, that was what I intended to do kind of for the rest of my life. Okay. But, uh, you know, something uh, happened along life, the way here. Yeah, though. Right. <laughs> life takes you different places. <laughs> yeah. So what, what was the big turn? I mean, it sounded like Corey was the level headed one in all of this. Is did, True. She, did she play into any of the, this change or did this come out of left field for you or her or when did you well, guys start to see, uh, when did a whole new world path start opening up for you? Well, first of all, you're right, Corey. She's a mechanical engineer. She was our class valedictorian. I was the class clown. Uh, <laughs> it's one of those relationships. You know, our paces have always been very different. It's one of those things where if we'd gone at my pace, we would have been married a week after high school graduation. Yeah. You know, if we'd gone at her pace, we probably would still be dating right now. <laughs> make sure we could afford it. Make sure it was the right time. That's funny. <laughs> but together, you know, we 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 sort of uh, developed uh, a real rhythm for life, sort of like a left pedal and right pedal of a bicycle. Okay. Uh, we were kind of going at the same uh, speed, and we we're in our right places relationally, and we, so we could move forward. At any rate, both Corey and I had always felt led. Uh, to adopt. Uh, we always thought that at some point in time, an adoption would be a part of our lives. And so when the time came, we'd been married for three or four years, we started looking at building a family. And um, as far as we know, and knew at the time, we we're able to biologically reproduce, but uh, uh, we started looking into international adoption. And through long story, and anyone who's ever been involved in international adoption, they know it is a long story, mm -hmm. uh, but God led us towards uh, Vietnam. And, you know, to that time, if you would have asked me, I don't know, when I was 20 years old, to list the top 50 places in the world I'd like to uh, visit, mm -hmm. uh, there wouldn't have been a single place on Asia, in Asia. You know, I, I 
wasn't particularly interested in, you know, the Taj Mahal, the uh, Great Wall of China, Angkor Wat. It just wasn't on our radar screen. But when uh, we started honing in on Vietnam as where we were going to try to adopt from, uh, sort of our lives started to point in that direction. And we started to become very interested in Asia, very interested in uh, culture, in the countries and the politics. And so in 1998, uh, we traveled to Vietnam with a small group of other families adopting, and we adopted our a son, Chien. He's now a sophomore in college. Right then he was a little uh, shiny baby, uh, <laughs> six months old. And, and we went to Vietnam, and we weren't going there because we thought our life is going to now be about Asia. It's kind of where this is where we thought our kid was, okay. and where we're we supposed to go. But leading up to the trip and then really uh, coming home uh, while we were on that trip was this it was this deep sense of connection. And, and so while we were there, most of the other families who were adopting, they couldn't wait to get their kid and get out. And, you know, they looked at things like the food and the traffic and, you know, all of the, you know, the trappings of being in a communist country as this is an obstacle to some sort of goal. Uh, yeah. Corey, and I, we found ourselves just absolutely fascinated. We didn't want the trip to end at the end. We wanted to stay. And, um, so they were doing know, more of a rescue mission type thing. And, but you guys were captivated by where you were actually. Well, maybe. I mean, I think that everybody, they had their different motivations for uh, what brought them to Vietnam. But, you know, for most of the people, Vietnam itself uh, was uh, sort of a scary place. And it probably should have been for us. We really hadn't traveled much. We didn't know what we were doing. We were young, but uh, we just felt while we were there, not only a sense of peace, but sort of a sense of exhilaration. Okay. And, and so we started asking questions, you know, when everyone, everyone who adopts, it sort of starts out where it's all about their child, mm -hmm. so their uh, journey in that. But while we were there, we started asking broader questions, you know, why are the orphanages like this? Why are there so many kids who are in orphanages? Why is the country so poor? What are the social factors that uh, are, uh, you know, contributing to these issues and and we didn't do much with them at the time but they kind of stuck and they kind of got you know this sort of that rock in your shoe that uh, uh, keeps on digging in deeper the further you walk and so that was really the start of our journey which ended up leading us kind of where we are now well you come back Chen comes home with you guys um, you're still working at the business but um, how long till till something reemerges where you guys want to re-engage with, with Asia in some way? Well, um, it's probably too long and weird of a story to introduce right now, okay. but uh, we very soon afterwards adopted a second child, and this was a sort of a, a surprise adoption, which never happens. And, and this uh, child, our son, Pak, was born in the U.S., but he was uh, of Korean descent. And so by that time, we had two adoptions. Both were Asian kids. You know, we sort of had started to think, well, maybe we're not supposed to try to have biological kids anyway. Um, but right, really at that time, we we're just sort of overwhelmed with life. I was running a small business. We had two kids, uh, you know, very young age. And, um, but we were working with our, our, our church youth group, still in the church that I'd grown up in at that time, working with the youth group. And uh, we just couldn't stop talking about Vietnam and stop talking about, uh, about Asia in general. And the youth pastor, a guy named Phil Johnson, said, hey, John, I know you uh, are really interested in Vietnam. Would you ever consider uh, doing anything in Cambodia? Okay. And I didn't know anything about Cambodia at the time, except I knew it was near Vietnam. 
I knew it was really poor. I knew that all of the uh, uh, social problems that had afflicted Vietnam had hit uh, Cambodia even worse. Uh, and I had some sense that there'd been a genocide. Um, and I, but I didn't know anything more. And I said, well, sure, you know, why? And he said, well, I know a guy who knows a guy sort of thing. And he told me about a friend of his who, uh, who takes uh, short-term mission trips from his church and goes to Cambodia. And so I called the guy up and uh, invited myself along. And uh, just a, a few weeks later, I think, if I remember the chronology correctly, just a few weeks later, I was buying tickets and heading on my first trip, a short-term mission trip to Cambodia. Okay, so the, the original... So were you guys going there to like uh, convert people? I mean, was it a it was religiously driven at that point? Yeah, it was a church mission trip, and I actually didn't really know that much about it. Um, you know, I knew that when I when I met the guy, it was kind of funny. When I met the guy, his name was Dave Atkins, and he was a pastor in Worcester, Ohio, which is about an hour and a half away from where I live in Columbus. And uh, uh, you know, he said, "Yeah, I met a, a Cambodian pastor." And he invited me to come back sometime and, and to bring people. And so he had been taking trips for a couple of years. You know, sometimes he'd bring dentists if they needed dental stuff. This trip, there was a youth conference and some other things that he'd been invited to participate in. And uh, he, he, you know, he was a musician, great guitarist, and he'd led worship for years. And, and so I, I just said, I'd like to come on this trip. And he said, well, we don't really have anything for you to do. We don't have, you know, uh, space for you. We've already bought all our tickets. Uh, and I said, is there anything you need? And he's like, well, you know, the only thing I really need is a backup singer. Um, <laughs> hey, I happen to know a guy. <laughs> and, uh, that was another part of my story. You know, I, I had said before I was always musical. Well, you know, in addition to doing freelance graphic design in college, I'd also basically put myself through college doing, you know, singing at weddings and doing some background vocals, studio background vocals and that. So I told him I can sing. He invited me up to his house. He actually got out his guitar and an old uh, notebook with laminated pages, and he started running through songs, and and he auditioned to me, basically. Okay. So I, I went not because I was particularly uh, uh, drawn to a specific you know, missiology or philosophy of this trip, uh, but because I had this just deep feeling like God's got something for us there. I'm supposed to be there. Um, and so I went. Hmm. And, you know, to, to be honest— Looking back on it, I, you know, I, almost everything we did on that trip, all the places we went, the way we participated, the way we interacted, you know, it was really about white guys with guitars and, you know, I, I, it, I wouldn't do it that way now. You know, okay. I, I, I didn't find anything particularly compelling missiologically or philosophically, but I was blown away by the Cambodians I met. I mean, hmm. you know, the, these guys uh, had been through just absolutely uh, horrendous uh, lives. You know, I'd met people who are child soldiers and you know, the only surviving member of their family all had been killed in the genocide. People who had lived their entire lives in refugee camps uh, until they're 18 or 19 years old. And these people had very, very little and were getting very little assistance from the outside world, but they were just absolutely inspired by the idea that they could you know, change their country and they could mm build schools and they could feed the hungry and they could heal the sick and that they could, uh, you know, uh, see Cambodia raise up out of the ashes. Mm. And so that was, that was uh, super inspiring to me. Mm. Yeah. Do you and, mind, do you mind if I, before you go forward, just as a, as a side note, we were kind of joking about you and Corey being on opposite ends of sort of the personality side of things. Yes. You, you referenced this idea of you just had, you felt drawn to go and yeah. I was wondering, just for people that might be in 
you know, relationships themselves with, they might be the kind of person that can respond to that kind of a sense of calling. I wonder, was it, did Corey have that same sense or did she just like roll with it on you or did you guys both get that sense at the same time or? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, and one of the things that I, you know, left out is that, that Corey and I had had, you know, a number of conversations, you know, we came back from, uh, Vietnam with Chien. Uh, we'd asked ourselves a couple times, are we, I don't know, are we supposed to like move our business overseas and, and do some sort of business as mission or charitable, you know, uh, organization? Are we supposed to become missionaries? So we ended up talking to our church at the time and, you know, they came back to us and they said, yeah, we've all talked about it. You guys are definitely not cut out for, <laughs> for international ministry. That's you know? so funny. Okay. And, and I think in retrospect, it goes back to just a, it, I'm I'm actually glad that they didn't give us the opportunity yeah. uh, to do it because I don't think I would have lasted long, you know, in in that paradigm. In that paradigm. Okay. Right. So we'd already had some of these conversations, and as cautious as Corey is at at some level, uh-huh. uh, you know, personality wise, you know, our entire relationship had been somewhat improbable. She'd been advised by everybody at our school. <laughs> You know, that she probably shouldn't date me because I was trouble, <laughs> and she she so it was a stubborn streak as a part of it, and, you know. And and she we had already started from the uh, adoptions are a real sort of, you know, throw caution to the wind, faith filled, yeah, uh, sort of thing to do. Um, we we'd sort of been through our paces where we had a little bit of a rhythm of just saying, I think this is what we're supposed to do, okay. going for it, you know, starting a business, and so she, we were all we'd already sort of worn down some of that risk aversion, okay. And, and when I had said, I really think I'm supposed to do this, she said, do it. I think you're right. Do it. Okay. So she was 100% behind it. So uh, there was a certain level of trust with your instincts even. there was You had talked about it a little bit, and it was like, well, even if it wasn't her idea immediately, it resonated with what you guys had already experienced and had been talking about and, and things like yeah, that. Yeah, that's right. That's okay. right. She'd already, and, and she'd already kind of gotten used to you know, me being a uh, a little bit of a, a maverick or me being, you know, somebody who says, you know, let, why don't we try this? And so far, you know, we still had a roof over our heads and our, our kids were eating. And so, uh, she had, uh, you know, I think she, and I think she wanted, you know, she wanted what was best for me and, and had a sense that if it was good for me, it was probably also good for our family. So she was okay. very on board. Okay. Well, you come back from, you know, white guy, white guys playing guitars, yep. but you, but you're, but you're impacted deeply by, by your experience with the Cambodian people. Um, you come home, you know, what's the, what's the next thing on the, what's the next step for you at that point? Well, you know, a lot of it was just getting back into work and, and trying to, you know, keep, keep the business afloat. You know, we, especially in those early days, you know, we didn't, the business was, uh, you know, we were building it. And so no one ever makes money at the beginning. Um, so, so I came back, uh, threw myself into that, but couldn't shake the, the thought of what I'd seen and the people I met. And so I started asking questions with, you know, Dave and some other people, uh, Dave being the guy who had led the trip and some other people, you know, what would it look like if, if we could, rather than have this kind of just be about us, you know, I had been given the, he'd invited me, come back with me next year if you want. And I thought I'll probably do that. But what, what would it look like if we could actually, you know, raise some money or something for some of these people who are, are out, out there already doing the work. And and that's where, you know, some of the other things that I look back and I realize I was being prepared sort of in a karate kid style, wax on, wax off, okay. uh, you know, sort of thing. I'd been 
really pushing in the last few years with the business. Uh, we had a lot of nonprofit clients. Okay. Uh, we'd been asking the types of questions for other people's projects, you know, and I, we'd sort of had situation where, and, and I had a lot of great clients, but a lot of professional marketing really is polishing turds, you know, <laughs> you know, I mean, okay. I mean, you're, you know, I, I always had a strong ethic that I wouldn't, you know, overtly lie for anyone or take on a, a, a project that really, uh, stood in opposition to, you know, deeply held values I have, but you know, you're, you take any product or you take any organization and you're always trying to find what is the best way of lighting this thing? How can we diminish its shortcomings? How can we emphasize its, uh, you know, its strengths and, but you know, I, I looked at what these guys were doing in Cambodia. It's like, man, this is almost an unmitigated good. Mm. You just have you just have story after story of fantastic things these guys are accomplishing. Amazing people who want to do great things. Mm. So, so did you jump into the now? We might as well at this point talk about at least what Age of Hope began sure. as, um, sure. because you got you kind of were jumping into the orphanage side of things at least out of the gate. You what you thought was going to be orphanage work is that right? Well, sort of. I mean, so when it first started out, and I'll kind of give the uh, fast forward version of it, you know, we started asking our friends for money. We, we talked to our Cambodian friends and said, what would you need? They gave us some small projects, started asking our friends over here for money. We weren't really trying to start a nonprofit at all. Okay. Uh, we were trying to kind of be casual, ad hoc venture capitalists for what these guys are doing. Um, and so I'd go out and I'd tell their story, and David would go out and tell their story, and people would give us cash. Okay. Um, and at first, that's what we thought we were going to be. Um, we never thought anybody was going to, you know, have a job. We didn't know we'd have a logo and a name. Uh, but you know, over the first months that we started doing this, we started getting more and more money, and we started funding more and more projects. It became clear to us that we needed a higher degree of accountability, and that it probably wasn't wise to, you know, walk into Cambodia with ten thousand dollars in cash. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> strap in your thigh and not be able to give receipts to anybody. That feels like a Tom Cruise movie coming out or something. <laughs> He's much better looking than I am, but but yeah, something like that. Okay. At, at any rate, um, but when we did decide to start Asia's Hope, um, really our goal was to let's find existing indigenous leaders and let's give them money. Okay. Um, and so some of the projects we were working on, we were doing some medical and dental things. We were uh, funding some university uh, students, uh, places for them to live and, and, and some training for them. Uh, we were also doing some work at some state-run orphanages. There's one in particular on the banks of uh, the Mekong River uh, that we visited, and it was, it was everything that you would think of when you hear the word orphanage, right? You know, okay. it was low nurture, institutional. There were hundreds of kids. Uh, they were filthy, malnourished, sick, some of them actually dying. There were very few workers there. Those who were there seemed untrained and uninterested. The uh, director uh, seemed at glance to us to be manifestly corrupt. We actually were introduced to them because we knew of some Americans who were giving money to the director thinking that they were building, you know, playgrounds and, mm. you know, computer rooms. And we were there. There's none of that there. Mm. But but we came and we brought toothbrushes and rice and uh, uh, formula for babies and uh, uh, medical vitamins and supplements and that. Mm. And so we had sort of started out doing just that sort of a hodgepodge of different things. Whenever we met somebody uh, who was doing something good, we'd ask them what they needed and we'd try to raise money for it. Mm. But 
after a couple of years, we started to build some deeper relationships there. Uh, the the guys that we were partnering with there at the time, you know, had said we really want to do an orphanage at some point in time, and uh, that struck a chord in me being an adoptive father. That was something that resonated, and so um, we began to raise money for this. And when we felt like we had enough money, we told them go ahead and pull the trigger. But when you were first doing an orphanage, you had you had a certain idea of what this orphan, you know, I know you you didn't care necessarily for the way the institutional state-run thing was operating, but you still had a kind of more traditional orphanage in mind when you were getting started, right? That's right. So, you know, we didn't uh, have the model that we have today, which I can talk about in a little bit. But, you know, what we did know is we wanted it to be much better than the place my son had come from in Vietnam and, and, and uh, as different as can be from the orphanages that we'd visited already in Cambodia. And so at the time, um, we decided we're going to limit it to 40 kids which actually is about twice as big as we would do now, but it was about a tenth of the size of some of the ones that we'd experienced. Um, but the thing uh, that kind of became the defining moment and ended up being the killer app was our Cambodian uh, partners. They hired a Christian pastor and his wife. Uh, his name is Sang Yu. Her name is So Kian. They had two biological kids, hired them, and uh, then hired uh, some of their relatives uh, a family unit to sort of work as the center of this orphanage. So instead of having shift workers, which all the other places we'd seen, they'd have shift workers. You'd have your daytime shift and your nighttime shift, or you'd have your Monday, Wednesday, and Friday shift. Mm -hmm. um, they had a stable family, a married couple with their own kids who lived and who, you know, really uh, created uh, what became like a big family. And that was super uh uh, transformational for me. I remember going back about six months after we started and, um, you know, saying you would say something like, uh, I need to leave now to take my son to the doctor. He wasn't talking about Gideon, his son. Uh, he was talking about one of the Asia's hope kids or saying, uh, my daughter needs a bicycle. And he wasn't talking about his biological daughter. He was talking about, uh, one of the kids that we brought in and, and, we all agreed, man, we can't tell who the biological kids are and who the, uh, the Asia's Hope kids are. This, even though, you know, nothing had ever told us that uh, we could do something like this, we said this is kind of against all odds, becoming a real family. Hmm. And, and that for me was the moment, uh, even though uh, we didn't restrict our focus to yeah, to orphan care and family style orphan care until a couple of years from then. For me, that was the moment the penny dropped. Mm. That was the moment where I kind of became laser focused. When I thought about Asia Soap, what Asia Soap was going to become for me, it was how can we do this over and over again? How can we do this better and better? And uh, that's kind of uh, uh, the path I've been on since then. So you sort of stumbled into the to the family oriented nature of it. And um, maybe this is a good time just to describe for people what Asia Hopes has become, sort of the, some of the distinctives of what you guys do, because it right. is it is a bit different than the kind of traditional institutional model. That's right. Uh, so uh, Asia's Hope, uh, we're a nonprofit organization. We work in Cambodia, Thailand, and India, and we provide family-style residential care for orphaned kids at high risk of sexual and economic exploitation. That's a lot to unpack, but yeah. uh, what, what you said really is uh, the key to it um, is that we are now 
working to create uh, as much as possible something that looks like a family and doesn't look like an institution. And so right now uh, we uh, have 34 of these homes in Cambodia, Thailand, and India. Uh, we also have a couple schools. In full-time care, we have more than 800 uh, uh, 800 kids in full-time care, and then even more if you count the kids at our schools. Mm. And, and, and our model looks something like our original uh, orphanage, and that is a, um, a family, a married mom and dad, their kids, uh, a, a couple other full-time staff to work as aunts and uncles. Many times they're related to the uh, married couple, and then we bring in a total of 20, 25 max, because we try to keep siblings together, so sometimes we have a few extra, um, you know, kids, and we raise them in a single family home that we rent or build. Uh, we provide ongoing support for them, and uh, we raise these kids all the way through. Um, hmm. We don't, you know, we a lot of uh, institutional orphanages, kids get a certain age, they, they get 10 and they get moved to a different facility, or, hmm. you know. Or, or in almost every single other organization, you know, they turn 18, and regardless of where they are in school, they age out and they, they have to leave. Yeah, I've Our, heard that's a big issue here in the States, too. It is. Ours is a comprehensive care model, and it's based on that idea, well, if we're going to do this and we're going to say it's like a family, it's going to really be like a family. I mean, if, you, if, hmm. if your kids are, you know, 19 and they're still in high school, you don't say, I'm sorry, 11th grade is what you get, and you're 18 and we're done. <laughs> Um, and beyond that, we, uh, uh provide a university or vocational training for any of our kids who graduate high school and can go on to that. And so it's a very, you know, we decided pretty early on that we would, and God bless the organizations that do this. We didn't feel called to be the organization that helps a hundred thousand kids with a backpack and a toothbrush and a suit, uh, you know, and a, yeah and a sandwich, we would rather have a smaller number of kids and provide them comprehensive care. Mm. Um, first of all, it's a, it's incredible. And it's really, um, it's, uh, it's kind of inspiring when people have the chance to sit down for a second and kind of get that image in these 25 people. It's, it literally is, they're going to grow up with these people. And, um, it's not, like you said, it's not just like graduating out or just getting a few supplies. It's like, no, you've, you're a part of, of a family unit now. Um, you, but you were addressing, you know, people or maybe they're orphans or maybe they're like at risk for, for sexual exploitation. Like, I wonder if you could just real quickly, um, you know, how do you get these? I mean, how do the how are the children chosen? I mean, is it just the locals kind of give you insight on they they see kids or they, you know, what what how does that happen? Sure. Uh, and one thing I want to I want to emphasize and I didn't point out before, you know, we we started out uh, being about empowering local leaders. We still today, 100 percent of our staff in Cambodia, Thailand and India are indigenous. So now we have, mm. I think, 240 staff. All of them are for the from the countries in which uh, they serve and everyone from our national directors to cooks and cleaners and, you know, uh, and and coaches, they're all. In Cambodia, they're all Cambodians. In India, they're all Indians. And so uh, these guys have deep, deep networks in the community, close relationships with the government. So the kids who come to us come to us uh, a lot of different ways. Okay. Um, you know, we do try to have uh, as close a relationship as possible with the local governments. Um, it's taken us longer uh, than it might have some organizations to build an indigenous organization, uh, with close ties to the government, but, uh, you know, it's made us stronger. And so we'll have government social affairs officers actually come and say to us, 
hey, guys, we have uh, just received into our care in this province, in this village, you know, in this part of the country, you know, three kids, uh, dad, uh, died, mom committed suicide. They've been living with an uncle who's been abusing them. Mm. We'd like to keep them together. Do you have a place for them? And and if we do, mm. our our guys will go out. Our director and and some of our staff will go out and they'll uh, actually do uh, something of a home study and and make sure they can vet the situation, figure out what this kid's real story is, figure out if there are any other family members who could take care of them. And if they can't, and if we have room, we'll uh, admit them into one of our homes. Mm. We also have, sometimes we have kids uh, who are referred to us by other nonprofit organizations that don't do residential orphan care. Okay. Uh, whether it's a Compassion or a World Vision or in Cambodia, we just had a, a great organization called Agape International, and they work in human trafficking. Uh, they don't do residential orphan care, and they, they referred a child to us uh, recently. Um, and then sometimes we'll have, you know, kids who are left on our doorstep. It's it's our, sort of our least preferred way of getting a kid because it's harder to figure out who are you really. I mean, what what's your your mm. background? Um, but we have kids that come to us that way, mm. and these kids come to us from you know if if you want to just look at heart rending and sort of uh, harrowing stories, you could just pick a stack of any of the bios of our 800 kids and just randomly flick through it and you'd find stories that just you, you can't imagine not only the the past that these kids have been through watching parents die you know having their parents uh, you know sentenced to long uh, long jail terms uh, discovering their parents bodies when they've committed suicide mm -hmm. uh, being just abandoned in the middle of the night you know all these all these different stories not only from their past, but also their future. Hmm. Now, I said that these kids are at a high risk of sexual and economic exploitation. Hmm. You know, people talk a lot about human trafficking and they talk about sex trafficking. And I just want to tell people when you hear sex trafficking of children in places that we might call the developing world, you can't, uh, that you can't uh, disentangle that from orphaned and abandoned children because the kids at highest risk of being trafficked, being exploited are kids who don't have any parents or family who can look after them. Mm. There really aren't that many, you know, we, we picture in America sort of a white van uh, going yeah. to and grabbing kids from the bus stop, uh, but that's not the way it generally happens in our part of the world. It's kids who they've already run out of all of their options and there's nobody to look out for them and they are easy pickings mm. uh, for people want to exploit them so um, um just a couple of follow-up questions there number one you talked about um well you talked about working with the governments and stuff and that's got to be an interesting adventure too because i mean as as crazy as the states are there's some level of stability here you know in terms of like our systems and such and i would imagine in some of those different countries that's got there's a lot of a lot of change happening all the time and i wonder how hard that's been to navigate uh, yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, we've been through coups. Uh, we just came off of in the area of India where we are 104 days of civil unrest where, you know, rioting in the streets and people rising up against the police. And, uh, you know, there's a, a lot of uh, unrest. And that's why it's so important that we have and we've empowered uh, indigenous leaders. Even if I was twice as smart as I am, which would probably not be that difficult, <laughs> uh, any skills that I have uh, gained or could gain here in America uh, wouldn't prepare me to be a skillful operator in a place like Cambodia. Mm. Uh, those skills don't 
uh, translate. And you actually see a lot of times really successful American uh, business executives or uh, or or preachers or uh, charity workers in the United States who you know sort of dash their ships on the rocks of either government or cultural uh, barriers in countries like Cambodia or Thailand or India. Uh, our local staff, they are highly skilled. They have lived there all of their lives. They know not only the text, but the subtext. They know when to push, you know, they know when to pull. Um, and so we trust them and they get us out of, you know, and, and I, you know, even though my name's at the top of the org chart, you know, I'm always working hard to not try to step in, even when I visit and I'm on the ground, not to step in and actually try to do stuff. You know? Yeah, I'm there to encourage. I'm there to I'm there to bring resources, but I'm not there to do stuff because these guys know what's going on. So with like 240 indigenous staff, does that leave you as like the token white guy with a guitar left over as a remnant from the beginning? Does that? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, we do we do have you know one of the things that that's uh, another thing is different about us from some other organizations. We get most of our funding from the uh, what would be called we might call the West from the United States, Australia, Canada, but we're not a short-term uh, missions or a volunteerism organization. We don't take any of the money uh, directly from bringing trips over. So we don't constantly have to be bringing over, you know, lots of, you know, white people over there to keep the, uh, the lights on. We do, however, with people who are existing funding partners, we work with a lot of churches uh, and businesses, we will invite them to come over for accountability and for mutual encouragement on a regular basis. So we do have a relatively small, manageable group of white people who do show up and see how things are going every okay. once in a while. But my job really, you know, it's something like, I don't know, CEO or senior pastor, my job is to is has gone from... Uh, on a daily basis, sort of dealing with, you know, nitty gritty stiff stuff on the ground, which I never really, you know, got that granular, but even kind of knowing all of the kids, individual stories and having relationships with all of the kids or even with all of the staff, I'm really working on developing relationships with our top national directors, you know, some of our, their top lieutenants in the countries trying to build consensus with them, understand their vision, uh, build a vision that allows us to say, well, what is, you know, what makes us Asia's Hope? Why, are, why is Asia's Hope in India the same organization or part of the same family it is in Cambodia, even though we're different cultures, different governments? So my role as time has gone on has really gone from, you know, um, understanding and, and doing anything on the ground to, um, you know, being there to encourage, build consensus and bring resources. Yeah. You know, one of the things, as you were talking about, there's bigger organizations, like you said, that try and reach hundreds of thousands, you know, um, I know one of the draws for people over the years to like a world vision type thing is that there can be a direct connection with one particular child. And so sure. there's always been a draw to that. And what I think is so interesting about what Asia hopes, Asia's hope does is that you seem to have groups of people that are actually adopting a large family and there seems to be a much more natural, um, I don't know, there's just a much more a relational connection to the whole process. Like it's not, I'm giving this money to this third party. Not that those things are bad, but it just seems like a really unique uh, way for that to happen. And just kind of a new paradigm of how this happens. But, um, you know, but was this, there really was no plan or path to everything you're doing here, right? You just sort of like, have you been stumbling along the way? I, mean, I know you're you're recruiting what? people now, but... Well, I think that I think that 
a lot of ways to sort of dig into that. But I, I would say that, you know, I have been able to take sort of a design and a branding perspective. You know, the, what I did in my professional world was to try to oftentimes with scarce resources say, how can we narrow down to what is the one salient point? What is the one defining feature? How can we strip away, you know, all of the uh, the different messages to get to the one that's most important? And, you know, being a small organization, whether it's a small coffee shop that I'm designing a brand for a small school or something like Asia's Hope, you know, you don't have the ability like a World Vision. World Vision, those guys are great. The, the Comparing us to a World Vision is sort of like comparing the guy at your coffee shop uh, with a piano to like the, the Rolling Stones. The way, okay. the way, you know, the way the Rolling Stones, I mean, they're a multinational corporation they, and they can do things we can't do. And so to a certain extent, rather than have all sorts of sideways energy into trying to, you know, either duplicate models like those guys do or to try to uh, take as many types of projects out cast that wide of a net we kind of did our one thing and 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 starting in scarcity really caused us to focus down and say what are what is the one thing we can do that we can do really well and so our model was based on that you mentioned you kind of alluded to the individual child sponsorships we actually tried that at the beginning because it's sort of what we thought that you know, that's how you get orphans supported. Right. But for us, you know, first of all, we were just bad at it. I mean, even now, <laughs> you know, I, I say we have 240 staff overseas. We have three staff in our office in the U.S. Okay. Um, and I'm, you know, uh, that that's both a boast and a complaint uh, or a confession. I mean, we probably need we, we need to staff up here because we're just, you know, uh, always uh, in the weeds. But um, we never had the option of running a successful uh uh, a successful sponsorship program. It takes a lot of administrative work, but, but it did allow us to develop a model that does provide a much, I think, deeper relational, uh, a connection. So for instance, in the sponsorship model, you have, if, if we were to sponsor our 800 kids, we'd have to have a large staff here, uh, you know, keeping those relationships, making sure all the letters get written, all the people get what we promised them for their, $50 a month or whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and, and what you'd have is I think a, uh, a large number of very shallow relationships, uh, that are connected individual person, to individual kid. Mm -hmm. What we do is we look for a partnering organization that will adopt the whole home. So for instance, my church, uh, a small church in Columbus was the first church to sort of stumble into the, uh, the the what what's become a partnership model which says why don't we as a church just try to raise enough money that we can support a whole home mm. what would it cost for us to adopt all 20 kids and you know five staff and have our church be the sole supporters for that well that provides a lot of benefits to us instead of trying to process 300 small checks a month to support that home and 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 communicate with them we we cash one check from the church and instead of having to send just a little bit of information to you know 300 people we get to have a deep relationship with that missions pastor with the senior pastor or with those key volunteers where they can get to know these kids uh, on an ongoing basis um and so that's been the model that we have uh, that we've developed. It's been great for us. Um, well, sorry, sorry to interrupt. I just want to see um, two, two little questions I'd love for people to know is I'm sure there's a range of expense depending on location and um, different countries have different expenses and all the rest. But just first is sort of what kind of ranges does it cost to support like an entire home? 
you know, with 20, 25 children and a few staff? Um, well, that'd be the first question. Sure. Yeah. So, um, right now it is about, uh, a monthly budget for one of our homes, uh, ranges between about 3,200 and about 4,200 a month, which is a big lift, uh, for, uh, individual church or business. But if you look at the impact it's having on these kids' lives, I mean, where else can you, <laughs> what other organization you hire five people and provide comprehensive services? And that includes food and education and staffing and medical um, so we've got that. There's a bit of a startup cost when we start. Mm-hmm. Um, there's usually, you know, ten or fifteen thousand dollars, and you got to buy uh, beds and sheets and all of that. And, and then there's also if we're going to build a home rather than rent, which uh, in India we rent, in Cambodia, Thailand we eventually build. Um, there's the cost of doing that. Sometimes the churches or partners can pick that up. But we also will go to other donors uh, to try to come up with a capital cost for, you know, maybe 150,000 for land and, uh, buildings for a house, uh, for all of, uh, all of them. Okay. One of the things, one of the things that's getting more expensive for us, you know, that first group of kids, the first 40 kids we had in Cambodia, we told them, Hey, if you guys, uh, can, uh, graduate high school and want to go to college, we'll pay for, uh, tuition at the time. That was a super easy promise to make. <laughs> Well, I mean, if you look at Cambodia even today, only about 20% of Cambodians graduate high school. And if you look among the very poor, it's like 2% uh, might be expected to graduate high school. Okay. Uh, but at Asia's Hope, we have about 90% of our kids are on track to graduate high school. Wow. Uh, and most of them will go to university or, uh, uh, or vocational training. I mean, right now we have more than 100 kids currently in university. We just added about 30 kids this year. In five years, we could have 220 kids in university at one time. So those costs are going up. We don't automatically, historically, we didn't put that as part of, you know, sort of the entry cost is to put money aside for college. Mm -hmm. We have a scholarship fund that we're seeking donations for. But most of our partnering organizations, we're starting to talk in the beginning and saying, hey, if you guys put another $1,200 a month, uh, if you guys budget that in, by the time your kid goes to co- your kids go to college and we can project a certain percentage will you should have that tuition taken care of as well wow sort of an international 529 plan huh that's right um well the second question along with that was you know you've talked a lot about um churches and pastors and i wonder you know because this seems like regardless of faith tradition of whether someone has faith or not faith this still seems like an amazing model but i wonder is has faith been a big part of what these homes do is like church stuff, is, is that central to these homes? Um, sure. Yeah. yeah, we are a Christian organization. We're multi-denominational, so we have sort of uh, as far as, and that's multi-denominational in terms of who we partner with in-country. It's also multi-denominational uh, in terms of uh, people who support us uh, in our uh, funding countries, and plus we have lots and lots of people who uh, are either unaffiliated or have no faith or a, from a different faith who also support us because they see the good. Okay. That having been said, we are raising uh, these kids in Christian families. We hire Christian people. Uh, and so faith is important to what it is uh, we do. We're motivated. Uh, we're not an evangelistic organization uh, per se. That's not what our end product is, not conversions. Okay. Uh, it is uh, we b- are motivated by the fact that our, our Christian faith tells us that the Father God uh, sees uh, children who are living in poverty and abandonment and who are being uh, uh, victimized. He sees that as deeply offensive to him and that he's given his people 
um, and those who don't even know they're his people yet, uh, <laughs> resources, sufficient resources that if they would get engaged and share, uh, that these kids wouldn't have to live in this situation any longer. And so we're motivated by a deep sense that it offends, not only offends God uh, to see these children uh, victimized, but that he's given us the resources. Mm-hmm. You know, so uh, we, when we pray, we not only pray that God gives us more resources, uh, but we pray that God shows us what resources we already have that he's given us uh, for that purpose. Mm. And that reminds me, I, and I wanted to ask that just for sake of, and to be fair for people that might be listening and think, man, this is something I could really get involved in. And for some sure. people that can be an issue, but it sounds like it's just undergirding the the drive for what you guys do. But, you know, you talk about how people can get involved. You know, I was reading through your stuff and it sounds like people are, you know, you got football players selling Super Bowl rings. You've got, you know, bike some sort of bike collection type deal. I'm not sure. sure. Maybe tell us a little bit about how people that uh, their heart is kind of, they kind of spark by this and make, man, this is something I'd like to, how do, how do people get involved in what you're doing? Sure. Well, there are a lot of uh, ways that people can get involved. Um, You know, one of the things that we've begun to realize and is a, is a calling on my life is, you know, guiding people into courageous leadership on behalf of vulnerable kids. And that's something we talk a lot about. And so it looks different, uh, for every person. Some, some people, they may be, maybe a pastor at a church and you may have the ability to, to decide we're going to do this and put this in the budget. I'm going to the elder board and we're going to see if we can partner with them or, or a partner in a business or a manager, who may be able to say, hey, we have a charitable giving budget and we're going to try to put some towards Asia So, mm-hmm. uh, but, but a lot of people who get involved, it's much more grassroots. They're either giving what they can. Uh, people can all, we, we need lots of people to give uh, to scholarship funds, you know, make a monthly pledge, make a, a year-end gift. Um, we have a lot of people giving, but we're also encouraging them to become advocates for what it is we're doing. You know, look at what you have around you. You may be uh, a 12 year old student right now. We have some seventh graders, uh, who are working to get their, their school involved to raise money for the bikes you talked about. Mm. Um, you know, what, what can I do to get involved? Where do I have influence? You know, can I talk to my manager at work and say, Hey, do we have a charitable matching program? Hey, what's our company doing? Hey, do you mind if I, uh, publish an article about what this organization I'm supporting is doing in our, in our company newsletter? Mm-hmm. We think that people have a lot more influence than, than they know. And sometimes our most influential people have not been the people who can write us the biggest checks, mm-hmm. but the people who can say, I want to I want I want to be a uh, uh, an advocate for this and connect us to other networks of people who can help. Mm. Uh, we, you mentioned the bicycles we just had, and this is a great this is actually a great story. Um, the bicycle uh, initiative that is headed up by a group calling itself Edugo, and the uh, it was started by one of the guys who used to work for me at the uh, design firm I own, a guy named Jeremy Slagle. Uh, he's now a very, very successful uh, designer in his own right with his own company. Uh, and he loved to ride bikes and he also had marketing skills and he had a lot of friends and they weren't involved necessarily in churches and weren't affiliated with, you know, any existing support group. And he said, you know, I know you guys need bikes for these kids to go to school. Cause we talked about that as a big need. In the developing world, having a bike or not having a bike may be the difference between getting education and not getting one. And he said, what if I organized a race uh, and invite friends to be a part of this and you can buy uh, bikes for the kids? Um, They've done that for two or three years. Um, We just had a race. They've raised tens of thousands of dollars and bought 
dozens and maybe now into hundreds of bikes and, and motorcycles for our kids so they can get to school safely. Mm. That's the sort of thing that uh, people can get involved in. The other thing is, you know, right now we are actually uh, between now and the end of 2017, uh, we're doing what we're calling the big 15. We're trying to raise up uh, $15,000 a month in monthly commitments uh, to go towards education, to run our school, to, to help underwrite our scholarship funds. And we're trying to raise about $150,000 in one-time gifts so that we can start our next phase of expansion. Mm. We've been kind of stalled out over the last couple of years uh, as far as adding homes, uh, but we have uh, – waiting lists of kids. We have a lot of uh, needs at our existing homes that we need to do before we can start to uh, invite more people to start new homes. So that's, mm. that's an initiative. We always have things people can get involved in. And uh, so, if, mm. you know, we'll go to our website, asiashope.org. Yeah. Uh, that's Asia's Hope, not Asian Hope or Asian Soap. A S H O P E. Asian Soap. Okay. No, I'll put and we'll put that in the and we'll put that in the show notes too. But yeah, Asia's Hope. Um, dot org. But you know, you've there's so many things. There's so many stories. We could probably. I'm yeah. sure you could tell the stories of individual children um, for a long time. But one of the things is it seems like you know you've engaged. Um, sorry, one second. It seems like you've engaged um, a lot of your own questions over the year, and it's taken you through this. Um, what What are some of the questions you wish people were asking more today? I think that's a that's a great question. You know, one of the things that has really been inspiring me as we have changed demographically at Asia Soap, it used to be it was all about rescuing little teeny kids, and we'd be bringing in kids at seven or eight years old, and we're still doing that. But as we start to see these ambitious young scholars, uh, 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 graduate high school, go on to university, uh, have a vision for changing their world and communities. You know, I've really been thinking about this idea of leadership development, what it means uh, to use the resources we have to empower uh, indigenous leaders, national leaders, uh, and next generations to, uh, uh, to make their own solutions. And so, one of the questions that I think I wish people would have, and I'm, I'm encouraging our people who come visit or involved, is asking, um, instead of continually asking, what can I bring? When I go to visit, what can I teach these guys? What, what can we as an organization or as a church or you know, as Westerners, what can we teach our, uh, you know, our counterparts over there? Sort of that colonialistic or at least paternalistic impulse. Uh, the question I, I'm, I'm starting to ask is, what can we learn? What can we learn? And, and I'm encouraging people who go and visit, you know, hey, I know you want to teach songs and you want to teach games. Why don't you make sure that you don't take over more than you bring back? So if you've got an impulse that says, I want to go over and I want to teach these kids how to play kickball because that's something we do at our school or our church, say, hey, that, that may be appropriate, but why don't you learn some games that the Indian kids are playing? And why don't you take those back and uh, teach the kids at your school or church? Because not only... Uh, is that going to be enriching for you? But it's going to signal to our young adults that, that we don't believe that we're here to perpetually be the ones, you know, white people are the ones who teach and brown people are the ones who learn. Um, and, 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 and I think that that's going to be really key, not only for building, you know, our organization to be stronger in the future. You know, we've kind of brought everything we can bring. Uh, the real solutions to 
the problems on the ground are most likely to come uh, from the people who understand them best and those who live with them. Mm. Um, and so that's, that, that's, that's one of those things uh, for me as a, uh, you know, as an organizational leader, I, I also am a pastor in my church now and I lead worship, I lead music and, and I've actually made a commitment. I am going to try to you know, find songs that have been written in Cambodian or Nepali or Thai and translate them and sing them in my church rather than, you know, continually, uh, you know, look to say, Hey, I want to teach you guys a new song when I'm over visiting. Mm. Mm. Even from a theological standpoint, I was really convicted about this on my last trip. Uh, my pastors in Cambodia and Thailand and India, their bookshelf looks like a pastor's bookshelf does in America. It's got all the same authors or all European authors, all white authors, mostly male authors. Mm. You know, what can I do to, how can I encourage this next generation of leaders and tell them you guys can lead? You are the leaders in the global church. You're the leaders in the new economy. Um, if I'm not willing to say, what can I learn? So I went on Amazon and got some recommendations from a lot of my friends and have started filling up my, my bookshelf, and my reading list with, with books about you know, grassroots Asian theology, African uh, and Latina and uh, minority voices that have so much that they can teach us. And uh, th that's the sort of question that I'm not only wishing people would ask, but I'm reminding myself and I'm reminding my staff that we need to be asking ourselves. Hmm. That seems like such an obvious thing, but then when you say it loud, it's like this like light bulb. Like, wait, yeah, we. Why is it only the the white European authors that we hear from? There's probably a lot of other people with some thoughts on this, right? Oh man, um, John, this has been so good. Um, I hope people check out what you're doing. It's uh, it's inspiring stuff, um, and it's really compelling too. And um, I know with your website, you've got a lot of stuff on there people can dig into and and get more information. Um, but I don't know if there's contact information on your website as well. Sure. They can, you know, reach out to you or others there on staff. But um, yeah, I'll give my own personal email address. It's okay. John A O H N at asiashope.org, A S I A S H O P E dot org. Okay. Uh, or if people want to write to info at asiashope.org, like I said, we have a staff of three people. It's going to get across <laughs> my desk uh, uh, eventually. I'd love to have people uh, contact us. Uh, follow us on Facebook. Twitter, Instagram, we don't have a social media department, but we have so many great stories. We actually have more great stories than, than we have capacity to tell them, and we're working on increasing our capacity to tell them. Yeah. I mean, even if you just want to be encouraged, I tell people, you know, follow us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter or Instagram. Um, we need some good news in our news feed, and, and there are there's a lot of great stuff happening around the world, even in the midst of suffering and chaos. You know, uh, there's a lot of uh, fantastic things that are happening that we get to be a part of, and we get to share that with people. And I think that, mm. that that is a good in and of itself is to just remind people that, you know, uh, that the gates of hell are not burning down <laughs> the world, that there are people uh, standing yeah. uh, and still standing and will be standing uh even through the next coup, the next uh, natural disaster, the next uh, the next civil conflict. Yeah, well said, and that's that's actually been true for me. I have started, you know, I started following you guys a while back on social media, and it is it is pleasant to see 
good news coming through when there's so much, so much anger and other things coming through social media feeds. So I, I agree. It's a good, uh, good starting point. Even if people are just, you know, dipping their toes in this, it's a, it's a good thing to follow along with. Um, John, thanks so much for your time. I mean, I really appreciate you sharing your story and, and what you guys are up to. And like I said, I do hope people follow up and, and read your stuff because, um, there's so much more going on, so many more stories and so many ways to get involved and, um, really significant and meaningful ways and, and, um, being a part of something really good. So thanks for what you're doing. And, um, I hope we get a chance to talk soon. Thanks, man. I appreciate the opportunity to share with you and share with your listeners what's going on in our uh, world. And uh, bless you. And I'll talk to you again soon. All right. Cheers. Thanks, John. Peace.